Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Terry, how are you, sir? All good, Chris. Nice to be on today. Yeah, you you look really well, mate. Just been for a little run and a walk, and then I took a dog out for a walk. So, yeah, just uh, it's been a great weekend. Um, spent the weekend on on a on a naughty bus going around London uh, for our new knife crime campaign. Uh, Change your life, put down the knife. Um, went to Buckingham Palace and uh, all the major major places in London. It's been a, it's been a really great weekend. Confused us all. Brilliant. How's that? How's how's that campaign going or project? Well, we start. Well, we, I started counting against violence uh, about four years ago. Um, we had a, eight, a, a spat of eight killings in a, in a matter of two years, and two of them uh, were at my my girlfriend's school. Uh, two two young boys within six months. Uh, two brothers uh, got killed. So we started the campaign, and then over that over that two year period, we have we had um, four other guys uh, stabbed. So you know, so six other six others, and uh, one of them was a uh, was my niece's uh, girlfriend. So yeah, it's been a traumatic time. Um, um, so we we set up Camden against violence, and then now we set up a new one called Change Life Down a Knife. Uh, we set up in Coventry, so you know we're going to try and expand them to all different areas in, in in England, so we can all join together as one, and hopefully have a bigger voice. So hopefully government will listen to us. Um, because it doesn't seem, seem to be a joined up any joined up thinking when it comes to tackling uh, knife crime violence in England. Yes, I'm, I'm a, my qualifications youth work. I think I might have mentioned that to you before. Um, and yeah. so it's something that obviously I've got a vested interest in, yeah. in. Well, stopping obviously. Is it? You know, you get this people speaking out saying it's the black community is is that your experience or is it is it across no, the board? it's just it's just you know what it's it's, it's an easy narrative to, to, to churn out you know blame one culture we've got a very dice diverse community in, in london and england um this is not about black white chinese religion or anything this is about young kids that are going out carrying knives to protect themselves or to c- commit commit violence on other, other gangs, you know, so, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's, there's no one particular pocket, no one particular area, one, one particular group, you know, you know, we've got rich kids uh, stabbing each other, poor kids stabbing each other, but there's, there is, there, there is, um, there is a majority of kids that have been excluded from school, um, who are, who are taking up the, the, uh, the, uh, the mantle of, uh, uh, gang culture, you know, they've been excluded from school, so they, they have no respect for authority, no respect for, for, for the, for anybody, and and then what they do, they find a common ground with each other, and 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 you see you see them guys. You know, I speak to them all the time, and and the first thing I ask them, "Are you at school?" They said, "No, I was, I was kicked out. I was expelled. I was excluded." You know, so you know, this you know, they 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 seem to be, they seem to think that they've been marginalised for some reason, and then and this gives them carte blanche to actually pick up a knife and then start selling drugs and then protect that patch. But you know, it's, it's not just all about drugs. It's not all about um, county lines. It's economic, social deprivation, uh, education. Everything comes into the equation because it just isn't just isn't uh, gang members that are being stabbed. It's people at bus shelters, people on the underground, people are coming out of pubs. It seems to be epidemic as, as simply because people people are bringing different cultures into England, and some cultures carry knives. 
You know, when they get in an argument, instead of articulating a response or a message response or going to the police, the first reaction is to pull a knife. Then normally it's, not, it's, it's normally not the person carrying a knife that gets killed. It's the person they, they're attacking who gets a knife off them and then feels the need to actually stab them. So, you know, so it's a real vicious circle. Uh, which is trying to get the word out there to put down a knife, you know, and, and you change your life because no matter what you do in life, there is a way back, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully a perfect example of that and the people I work with, uh, quite a few of them are ex-criminals um, and they've all turned their lives around. We spend quite a lot of time now talking in schools uh, and doing, doing knife crime campaigns. Yeah. And we're going to come and talk about your fascinating story, Terry, but... As far as the knife crime goes, can you give us a rough percentage of men and women that uh, that? Are... Oh, you know, I think it's, it's definitely majority uh, majority men getting killed. Um, but you know, we have we still have a sort of a gang culture of women as well. You know, women women uh, are used by the gang members or, or, or anyone just carrying knives and going to a pub. You know, guys guys are more likely to be searched than a woman. You know, they normally open a handbag and that's it. You know, the women women will have uh, the knife on them. And then they pass it to them when they get into the pub, when they get into a club. So, you know, they use them as mules. They use them as, 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 as they make a complicity in, in, uh, in knife crime. You know, so, you know, there's no, there's no uh, just, just guys or, or just women. They're both as equally as, as, uh, uh, as bad as one another, I'm afraid, yeah. or being used, you know. Do you think these, this, these are young men who are, are missing a male role model, so, so a father in their life? Or is that, or is that too simple? You know what? You know, it's. it's I think. I think. You know, there's there's a there's a there's a lot to be said. There's lots of single parent families in the borough, in all the boroughs. You know, um, you know, if if you haven't got a role model in the family to tell you that's wrong, or to or to you know to, to chastise you when you do something wrong, or guide you, then you're you know you're more likely to listen to someone else who's a little bit older, who's probably a little bit more naive, but you know who's carrying a knife and look upon him as your is your mentor role model. So that's and that's what we seem to find. We seem to find that if you've got a guy who's on the estate, he's got a flash car selling drugs, carries a knife and, and talks to talk and walks the walk, they're let they're more likely to gravitate towards him than me, who comes in once once every now and then and says something. So you know what, you know, but you know, we we've got a we've got zero contract hours, we just had the coronavirus, uh, there's no jobs, we've got the highest rents in Europe, and we've got we've got young kids living with their mothers now. And and their fathers are living with their mothers. So they've got three generations living with, with under the same roof. And you know, the only way they, they feel they can break out of that is is to either commit crime, sell drugs, you know, and 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 carve out a territory. You know, they, they and they think it's acceptable, unfortunately. Yeah, and we've also got this thing, haven't we, that we 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 put all this these fake goals on our young people the bloody mercedes and the gold watch and the you know let's try and be like david beckham or some hip-hop gangster and the reality is when you're unemployed you're not qualified to do anything education doesn't suit you because that's it you know university's not university one for me until no. i was 30 odd years old right probably probably closer to 40 yeah and those avenues to sort of traditional, I, I don't know if manhood is the right word, but, you know, going into industry, going into the factories, going onto the farm, doing a trade, they're blocked, aren't they, for a lot of young people? 
you know, it's, it's also hard work, you know, to cut, go home and study every day is hard work. You know, we, we seem to have created a culture now where it's okay to go on the internet and believe you, you're becoming an internet sensation. You know, you're, you're on social media, you've got loads of followers and you can monetize that. But they all seem to fall under, seem to fall into the illusion that they can all do that. You know, most of the kids I suppose to, they got their, you know, doing a bit of rap and they're doing everything and they, and they think they're going to make it. So what they do then is they, they come out of school. They think they, you know, they put all their eggs in one basket, unfortunately, instead of, instead of, uh, Doing some education and doing doing uh, social media as as, as uh, on the side, you know they seem to be all now focused on one thing: social media. It seems, um, you know, I think we went through a time with uh, Big Brother and all these programs that you never had to earn anything. You just had to act stupid on a program and you earn hundreds of thousands of pounds and a living. And you know you've only got to look at Love Island and all these other things, you know. And they make celebrities out of these guys and and, and these girls and. You know, and people want to aspire to them instead of the guy working in, in uh, being a carpenter, a scaffolder, or working in McDonald's. They, you know, they look upon that as something that this, 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 you know, just isn't workable for them. It's just really crazy. You know, there's this magic pot of gold that's going to fall out of the air for them. But unfortunately, we both know that, you know, you have to put the hours in and there's a lot of hard work to earn, earn a, a decent wage or starting your own business. You know, and, and going to university and college, you know, is, is, is that first step. You know, unless you're actually prepared to put the hours in and, and do your degree and everything else, you know, and get into that, monetize your, your education, then you're always going to come into the low-level wages and that will then last all your life, you know. So they don't give, you know, they're, set, they're basically setting themselves up to fail. Yeah, and there's also the fact, isn't there, that when we're young, and I think you and I have probably been there, you... You operate out your ego, don't you? You know, it's all about you. Yeah. It's all about don't fuck with me and, and what 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 does this, you know, look at this car I'm driving and it's all really unhelpful. For- no, it's, it's, it's ego, hedonistic lifestyle. You know, it's, it's also about proving yourself as a man in this, in this world. You know, so, you know, whether it's, you know, I, I know from when I was younger, you know, it was who was the best fighter? You know, who, who, who could sell the most drugs, you know, who could rob the most banks, you know, it's, it was crazy, you know, but we, we you know, that's, that's how we were right, we were brought up in a very poor area, and, and, our, and unfortunately, my role models were, were armed robbers, um, and, and shoplifters, and housebreakers, and, and warehouse breakers, and I, I spent my childhood really just learning, learning off them, you know, I never knew, I never knew about university or college, you know, but I, I knew that I had to graduate to be the best I can at breaking into to warehouses, and then graduated to, you know, selling drugs and, and importing drugs from all around the world. And then I came back to England and, and we, we started the Ocean's Eleven uh, robberies. Um, you know, we was doing bonded warehouses uh, with police uniforms, dogs and vans and serving warrants on them. And, you know, that was, that was, that was my graduation, you know, from, from a young kid to, to a man. And that's what I thought was, was normal. It's crazy. Yeah, and I, you know, I went for a period in my life of being a criminal. And at the time, Terry, it it just seemed right for me, you know. Yeah. I, I yeah. know I'm I'm only saying this so people can try and understand the whole situation. But I didn't have any empathy for the people who were gonna lose out, you know, the people I was stealing from. It to me. I'd found my way in life and fuck you. Yeah. You know, I, I can see a future for myself now and I, I can see myself with money coming in and, and 
and I'm I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm not ashamed of it because it, it 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 wasn't a very clever thing to do and and yeah so I am I am ashamed not not that I not that I regret my experiences if that makes sense but it it was terribly freaking sad it was sad it was just sad for everybody involved and but as I say I'm, I just make the point that when you're in that arena you're not thinking rationally you're you think very single-mindedly don't you i think i think you know if you're surrounded by like-minded people you're never going to get the opportunity to 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 look at any anyone else apart from a a, a, a pay packet or a victim of your a victim of your crimes you know you never give them a second thought you know i've, I've met lots of guys over the years and so you know i feel empathy yeah you do feel empathy you do feel embarrassment and shame of what you did but that comes years later when you actually psychoanalyze it um I remember being being out, you know, day after day going out, and it was like sport, you know, but it was a necessity. You know, we went out every single day. We was doing the jump ups. We was out robbing security vans, doing doing um, doing robberies, you know, doing everything. You know, we never thought for one minute. It was always it was them and it was us. We, yes. you know, I was I was expelled from school. My dyslexia, you know, I was I was I was told I was stupid, you know, and I was put into care homes. I was beaten. As a kid, you know, I can remember walking into a car home at the age of 11, taken in there by my social worker and said, like, you know, you're not going to go home for a little while till you're going to have to stay here. And I said, why? You know, and she, she said, look, just go with these guys. And there was three guys and two, two women. And they said, look, come with us and just come around the back. And as soon as I came around the back, they said, like, you're not going anywhere. And then he went, whack, punched me straight in the, straight in the face. And then and then they all jumped on me. And, and I said, and they were saying, look, just calm down, calm down, calm down. I said, I ain't done anything. You know, all I want to do is go home. And then all they did was kept punching me in the back until I submitted, you know, and it just went on for about 25 minutes. And I was a young kid, confused, 11 years old. My mama just was with my social work and just walked off. She never saw the beating, thank God. But you know what? This, this was like, for me, I've never been hit by, by an adult before. I was terrified, you know, and, but it, it, you know, it just, it just taught me that one particular moment. Like, I hated authority. I hated the system. You know, from that day, that day forward, I didn't want to go home again because I felt abandoned by my mother. I felt let down by my social work. And they left me these, with these fucking animals, you know, to bring me up. And these people were supposed to care for me. And the first thing they did was whack, whack, uh, whack to, uh, you know, their, 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 their system on me, you know. So so as I got older, you know, I, last, I lasted four months there. And then they put me into another lockup. And as soon as I walked in there, it was, it was a place called uh, Ashford. Uh, sorry, Stanford House. And it was a, a, a sort of um, a wayward house for, for a lockup for, for about, I say, about 100 kids. And they had different, different houses that you lived in. And as soon as I got in there, I was told I couldn't have a bed, I couldn't sit down, I had to stand up. And then I was beaten by the other kids, you know, and, I, you know, and it was just beating, beating, fighting every day. And I've, I've come from a normal house as far as, as, far as I, I, I was concerned. And next thing I was placing this fucking den of inequity with violence was the only was the only currency that got you what you wanted. So I, I learned very, very quickly that I had to be so hard and so aggressive to anyone that came near me just to, just to push them away from me. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they, they then set me up on my career as a criminal because people saw that in me and said, you know what, this guy can look after himself. He's only like, he's only 15. Come with us. You know, and I've got, I've got older guys coming to me and, and, and I was... I was fearless, you know, I didn't I didn't care about anything. And then I I found myself being put through windows in warehouses, being taken on armed robberies. And you know what? And 
you know, the rest was history. I, I then entered into, you know, entered, entered into the criminal justice system. And then I, I landed in Alsbury prison, you know, which was for me the over 20, you know, over 21s. And I, and I, and I said, where I'd done my apprenticeship, you know, I met so many people. So when I did come out, I wasn't going to school. I wasn't going to get an education. I was going to go and take on the world. I was going to take everything I could, you know, and that's, and that's exactly what I did. And because, because I, I felt it owed me a living, you know, but, you know, as I look back on it, you know, I was just lazy. I was probably the most laziest person that you could imagine. I was, I couldn't be bothered to go to school. You know, I had dyslexia. I could have, I could have pushed myself. You know, I didn't want to go to work when I left school. I saw people going to work and I, and I, you know, I convinced myself I didn't want to join the rat race. But, you know, basically I was lazy and that was it. You know, there's no other excuse for being a criminal apart from being lazy. You know, I was beaten. I had all these things happen to me. But, you know what, so were the other kids in there. They got beaten. But they all went on and most of them went on to have productive lives, good jobs. I chose this life because it was the easy one for me. You know, there's no excuses. I, 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 I've never, ever said that, you know, that I'm a product of, of my upbringing. But, you know, the violence and, and what, what happened to me made me made me an animal there's no doubt about that but being a criminal was 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 a life choice basically because i never i couldn't do anything else i'm just you know i got bothered to uh to go to, to work and i couldn't probably get up at six o'clock in the morning yeah got you yeah. but we've also got to acknowledge dear terry have we not that when you're traumatized at such a young age it's not like being traumatized as an adult say in a car wreck or something it's an age where you can't make sense of it. So you, in, I, I'm, this is just my theory. So you internalize this trauma, which we now know, we now refer to as PTSD. Yeah. And you're carrying that for life imprinted in your brain at an age when you couldn't make sense of it. So yeah. you, you carry that, that sense of, well, it's a sense of lots of things, isn't it? Confusion. No, I mean, yeah, I, I bottled it up for years. You know, I normalised it as if it was normal. You know, and and it came out in so many different ways. It came, most of it came out in violence, anger, uh, self medication. You know, at an early age, I was I was smoking puff. By the age of uh, 16, 17, I was sniffing cocaine. You know, uh, I was self medicating to block everything out. I I I thought that I enjoyed it, but I I, I, I then realised I didn't. You know, I was, you know, I was, you know, the, the, you know, I was up and down like a yo-yo, I was coming off it. You know, I've, I felt depressed all the time. Um, but, you know, I, I, but I'd created a persona that, you know, if I felt that that inside, I could I could be normal. You know, as a criminal, you learn to be, you know, you have one face for everyone, high, joking and everything else, and being Mr. Tough Guy. But inside, I was confused. I was angry. I was depressed. I was, you know, most of the time I was scared, you know, but, I, you, know, but I, you know, I could never show that, you know, so... I was always the first one in on a robbery, the first one in on a fight, the last one out. You know, I was, I was, you know, Terry, you could really rely on me. You know what? I had so many insecurities that, you know, I had to go to the gym all the time, build myself up. But the bigger I got, the more insecurities I got. <laughs> it's crazy. So, like, it was, um, it was only when I, when I came out of prison and done therapy, I done therapy while I was in prison. It was only when I, when I sort of got into that and found out why I was the way that I, I am. It, it, it freed me. You know, I'm now able to, you know, not, you know, put a persona on now. I'm able to look at my emotions. I'm able to cry. Um, I'm able to show empathy and feel empathy. 
Um, and but this, this this took like two and a half years in a, in a in a in a therapeutic prison. But if I wasn't given that opportunity to actually look at myself and create a new future for myself, I would have been exactly the same. You know, it's, it was only by dealing with my past that I was able to. I've, I've not had a drink now for fourteen years. I don't smoke. I don't cheat. I don't take any drugs. You know, my life is so f- fulfilling. You know, I mean, you know, I've found faith. So, you know, all, all in all. And I learned that by dealing with it, you know, by talking, you know, that I was able to get it all out. You know, it never goes. You know, you never, you know, you never, when I think about the guys and, and the people that were supposed to look after me that hit me and beat me and all that and being left there and being abandoned, you know, it then never goes. But you know what? Where I was so angry and I carried the anger with me, it was, it was self it was explicit all the time. I, I noticed that it went, you know, as the more I talked about it, the more I wrote about it, and the more I did, you know, I, I thought, you know what? I don't, I don't feel the anger no more. It was only when I dealt with everything that I, I then empowered myself to, to not, not want anything. So it was really good. But you know what? I could never just pack up drinking or smoking just by saying, that's it, I've got to stop it, you know, because it's, it's good for my health. When I got all the demons out of my head, when you do therapy, it's like, it's like you take your head off, you rattle all the crap out of it, and you put it back on, and you fill it up with all the, the coping strategies. And that's why I wrote Living Amongst the Beast, because of all the coping strategies I, I learned through there. And all, all and all the epiphanies I had, you know, um, I wanted to share them with other people because you know what? As much as I didn't think therapy worked, you know, for most people, I thought there was a lot of people hiding in prison. There was a lot of rapists, pedophiles, child killers, wife killers. I felt that like they were doing it for a tick box. When I actually engaged in it and 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 I did it, you know, I, I, I at one stage I didn't particularly want it to work, you know, because I wanted to prove to everyone this was fast. But the more I, the more I, the more therapy I did, and the more I talked about it, and the more I saw other men talking about it, and I saw the anger go out in, in them, and and them started to operate on a completely different level. I had no other option but to say, you know what, therapy actually works if if you engage and you're prepared to talk about the issues that really affect you. Not talking about the fish, the the, the, the issues that are okay. It's the really deal issues that make you want to cry, that make you want to break down. You know, but once you get them out. I can remember I can remember going behind myself after therapy sessions, just putting myself against the back of the door and just crying my eyes out. You know, and, and, and but I opened that up. You know, it's brilliant. You know, I feel, you know, I feel like so many, I feel like the prison sentence I got was probably one of the best things that happened to me because I was given the opportunity for the first time in my life to actually do something worthwhile instead of stupid rehabilitation courses that don't work. You know, doing therapy and actually talking to other men. And train, train psychologists and train facilitators, you know, was probably the best thing I ever did. It was the best two and a half years spent in prison, I can assure you. You know, and, and you know, I spent all my time now teaching, teaching kids about dealing with boredom, you know, dealing about e- with ego, with shame, embarrassment, you know, and teaching them conflict resolution. But telling them the shame, ego, what, what people kill for doesn't physically hurt. So why are you then prepared to kill someone over that? You know, so, you know, once they really, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. I you know I love failing now. Before I couldn't fail. I couldn't let anyone see me fail because you know what? That demasculated me. But you know what? I fail now. I fall over. I wear pink socks. You know, I wear shorts every day. Do you know what? I'm so happy because I'm not carrying that 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 armor that I put through. So my life is really good. And and you know, and I share that through you know, living amongst the beasts when I wrote that. So, you know, so it's it's been it's been great because you know, i I get phone calls from all around the world, even you now. <laughs> And you know, you know, people asking me, you know, you know, to empower themselves because I, you know, I these 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 people were monsters to me. Even when I think about it now, 
it makes me angry and it makes me want to cry. You know, I'm a grown man. Because I always see these people as these big monsters. But, you know, I went, I went back to my care home the other week to, to, with, with someone. And then I, I, walked, I walked where I walked when I first went into this home. And there was a window at the bottom and there was a window at the top. And I remember looking through the bottom window. And now that I'm a man, I'm looking through the top window. And these guys were, were this big. But they, you know, but they were still big in that bottom window. And now I look upon it, they're not monsters anymore. They're not bigger than me no more. But I was afraid all that time. It's only when I when I went back there and, and dealt with them. I now that and I, I now spend my time. I now understand why people say who've been abused, sexually abused, and everything else, that I don't want to confront it because you know I'm scared. And I say, well, they're old people, but they're not old people. In their eyes, they're still that little kid. These people, they're monsters. You know, and they never lose that intonation in front. So now the good thing is I've empowered so many people, especially women as well, and men who've been sexually abused, because lots of men get sexually abused but never report it. They've actually gone now and, and they're seeing their abusers for exactly what they are, insecure, insignificant, manipulative deviants. And they're actually going to the police. They're writing about it, going to the police and they're getting convicted. You know what? If, if You know, the book done exactly what I wanted to do and more. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm really thankful for it, you know, and thankful for the opportunity to actually speak about it. Yeah, and we're going to put links to your to your book, um, <coughs> Terry, below the below the video, so people can find it. Was there? Um, a, a, you said something interesting there. You wouldn't change your experience for the world. That's the same with me with addiction, and, and no. this is this is one of those sad ironies in in our in our controlled society is we've been taught that experiences are like good and bad either good or bad and for me and i'm sure yourself now no they're just experiences that they're all part of the learning curve and i wouldn't you know i wouldn't change sticking needles in my arm 12 times a day for for anything i wouldn't change being mentally unwell um I look at it as I used to live in the matrix and it's, I don't want to sort of talk about our current situation, but you can see people that just by hook, line and sinker into what they're seeing on the mainstream media with no ability to question it whatsoever. And that would have been me as a young Marine say, you know, I, I thought politicians were good. I thought they loved me. Well, they have my best interests at heart, let's say. Um, and now, I'm, I'm free. Still yeah. make a lot. Of, still make a lot of mistakes, but I own my own. I own my own mind now, and that's a real special thing to to have. And as I say, I probably wouldn't be here saying this now had I not been through my experiences. You know, I think you know, you, you know, it's really important to be a free thinker. It's, it's really important to question things. I was always questioning things. You know, I've done it from a very early age. Um, I've never been a great lover in, in the government. You know, I think I've been proved right time and time again. Whether it's um, uh, the, the rent, you know, uh, they, were, they, were, they had um, second houses over here, and they they would add expenses. You know, they all, all you know, they all fitted them. This is one just little example. They all fitted them. Do you know? And you know, at the end of the day, they said, okay, look, we fiddled thousands and thousands of pounds here. One MP got uh, arrested and put in prison. You know, I made an example, of, and all the rest paid it back. You know, if we take that analogy and put it onto the criminal side, you know, and, and, and some, an arm robber got done for that, and I said, okay, listen, he's just got done. What I'm going to do, I'm actually going to say, look, I 
I'm sorry for what I did, and I'm actually going to try and get the proceeds of what I nicked from all them other robberies and give it back to you. Um, they wouldn't accept that. It's crazy. But we seem to have one rule for them, one rule for us. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's, you, know, it, you know, if you know about our government works, it's really important that we can't afford to have a day off. You know, we can't afford to get sick. We can't afford to get ill. Otherwise, the trains won't run, the cleaners won't come, and nothing else. So they keep us a, a pay structure, you know, £8 an hour. Can you believe that? And these MPs are on £60,000 a year, and some of them are 100. And, and, they, and they also get all their expenses paid for them. So they're on £140,000 a year. We get a measly £17,000 a year. And when we're working, or, you know, the worst case scenario is, is, is £30,000. £30, we got taxed. We got to pay our mortgages. We got to pay everything. So we can't even afford to have a day off. And this is what they do. They keep the low level down. And when you start seeing it for what it is, you start to realise, you know what? No one really cares about us. You know, they, all they want is us to actually adhere to their mortgage system, their tax system and everything so we can perpetuate their lifestyle and their lives. Because when we do get old, we're then told that, you know what? You spent all your lives, you know, building that your home and everything else. You can't even give it away. You can't even give it to your family about paying the heritage tax or yeah. whatever. And also, you know, they say, well, you know, you paid your, your all your national insurance and now we're going to pay for your care. You know, but what we're going to do, we're going to pay for your, your, uh, your, um, your medicine and we're going to pay for your, your operation on the table. We're not going to pay for your aftercare at the, at the home where you're going to go in. So now you've got to sell your home. It took you 35 years to, to, uh, to acquire. Uh, and now it's going to go in a matter of two and a half years because it costs a thousand pound a week to actually put you in a care home. Mm. And, you know, that's what, that's what we have to adhere to all the time. When you start, when you start seeing it unfold, it's, it's a case, I don't know if you've had an insurance, a car insurance. You have to get house insurance, car insurance, and every every sort of insurance. You say, well, you know what? A, a, a tree fell on my, my my car the other day because of the winds. You know, can I can I get it replaced? They say, no, it's an act of God. <laughs> you know, the rains come down and flood your house. No, sorry, it's an act of God. So, but you can't drive a car unless you get insurance. And you 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 tell yourself, you know, the reason I'm doing it, so if anything does go wrong with it, they're gonna they're gonna pay it out. You spend fortunes and fortunes on insurance, house, car insurance. And the minute you want it and they want any help, they say, I'm sorry, it's an, act of, it's an act of God. This is the world we live in. We're just getting taken for a ride and taken for granted. But we wouldn't have it any other way, yeah? Yeah. Well, the BBC licence fee is a prime example of that, isn't it? You've got the basically corporate criminals that brainwash society with all their lies and then they make it illegal not, not, not to pay them. Um, so this thing I've, I'm always saying, I used to say about this country, but of course it's not just the UK. It's probably, it's just the, the, the whole kind of Western system, isn't it? That there's always someone trying to take your money for doing fuck all. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think, you know, I think when it first started the BBC, I think it had all good intentions of bringing news from all around the world. It was great. I think like anything, you know, everything gets corrupted. You know, I think it's, it's a corrupt organisation. You know, I think, you know, you know, why do, why, you know, and also it's, it's, it's actually a propaganda machine for the government, unfortunately, yeah, again, another one, you know, they can't, it's supposed to be free press, free government, a free, free television, yeah, but you know what, if, if the government are paying you 35 billion pound a year, <coughs> you're not really going to say anything about, bad about it, you're going to, you're going to perpetuate their narrative, you know, and you, you look at the press in this country, <coughs> they say it's a free press as long as it agrees with the editor and the person that owns that owns the paper. So how's that free press? Yeah, right wing papers, left wing papers, middle papers. 
but not free papers. Unfortunately. Yeah, I've been talking about this a lot lately. And until we address the money system, <coughs> the, money, the money system we have is one of pure evil. It's it, all this interest and inflation and lending out money that doesn't actually, it's not backed by gold. It doesn't actually exist. It's just zeros and ones or numbers on a computer screen. Until we realise that these, these fuckers, they're playing all of us and we, nobody questions it. And everyone is tied into that system. It, it, its tentacles corrupt everyone through capitalism and, and all these, you know, uh, other... We've got quantitative easing. We've got um, austerity. You know, these are all, all words that they, they, they throw at us to actually say, you know what, we are going to take everything back off you. You know, we're not going to, you know, we're going to, we, you know, we spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds this year to do the roads, to do this education, to do the NHS and everything else. And then we spend all the time trying to fight the government because they want to shut them down. It just doesn't make sense. You know, I, I, if I go on, on my roads, you know, I can, can guarantee by the time I get to the end of the roads, there's 20 potholes. So, where, you know, I, I just, I just believe where all this money goes. Mm. You know, uh, uh, you know, you go to, on the, on the, I go on the motorways and I go around here and there's so much work going on on the, you know, there's, there's, there's lights on every corner, you know, being like, you know, they're supposed to be digging up the roads. I never see no workmen. You know, um, they just they just made my street into uh, a, a sort of pedestrianised zone now. And what they did, they put a, a, a concrete bar all the way along, so a bike can drive up it. So a push bike can go down the wrong right wrong way of the street. And now, where it was flowing really well, there's a there's a traffic jam every single day. And we've got a score across the road, and they and they have a traffic warden out there every day, saying you can't park there because of the because of the, the fumes for the kids. And now it's backed up from from the from the minute I get up in the morning. To the end of the day, seven o'clock, with with cars that can't come past, and the fumes are, are crazy. So you know what? They just seem to spend money on on stupid things all the time, and nothing that actually benefits the kids in their community. You know, we should be investing all that money into youth clubs, uh, social housing, and and things that are going to enhance the kids' lives in 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 our community. But all they want to do is they want to they just want to do things that actually benefit themselves. So unfortunately, that then comes at you know, they've all got three houses in London and they've got one in the Cotswolds. You know, this, this, is, this is our government for us, you know, and then they, and they tell us that, you know, we're going to help the old people in our, in our community by giving them actually 2p on their heating bill this year. You know, and you just think, fucking, they, they actually live in the real world. And the funny thing is, we actually eat it up. We actually say, you know what, they just, they just gave us two pence in the pan on our heating bill. Crazy, isn't it, eh? It's, you know, and, we, and when they put the, the, the living wage up from six quid to eight quid to nine quid, you know, you can living wage. It costs. It costs like, I think it costs eight quid for a pint now. So you you work an whole hour for a pint. You do 10, 10 hours a day, and you can just about four or five pints, and you can't even afford to buy your missus one. It's crazy. I just think you know. I remember, you know, as when I was younger, you know, hundred quid used to buy me like my rent, a room, and I could go out for the rest of the week. You know, five hundred quid now. What does it get you? It doesn't get you nothing. Yeah. You, know? you know, it's crazy. And even crazier is people keep voting for this system, thinking that you've got red and blue, that, that they got, you know, they're going to do something different for you, not realising, you know, the Labour, what, whatever name this party could, they all work for the money mafia. Of course they do. And I have refused to vote, Terry. I've never, the only one time I voted in my whole life was when my mate who lived with me ran for the Green Party because I'm a loyal 
loyalty runs big in me, right? So I, I went and voted for him. But people can't you know see they're, yeah. just, they're voting for their own slavery. And you know what, you know, if we, we, we you know, we've, we've heard the expression, you know, if you do the same thing over and over again, you know, and expect it to change, you're, you've got to be mad, haven't you? And we look, we look at a system in this country, yeah, that all it says is, is um, you vote Labour or you vote Tory. That is it. There's no choice, you know, or you've, you know, we had, we had a Tory government, no, a Labour government under Tony Blair was one molecule away from a Tory. Margaret Thatcher said the best thing that ever happened to this country was, was Tony Blair. Did you believe it? Because she was, she said he was, he was like her son, you know, and you know, and, and this is, you know, a Labour, a Labour guy now is worth a hundred million pounds, you know, a real socialist. And we were, we were, we were, we were blind. We walked into it blindfolded and we're still paying the cost of him and his cronies mm. in a war that's lasted over 20 years now, you know, and, and you know what? And he's, and he's still prospering from it. I think he's actually the peace envoy now in Syria and oh, sorry, in, in um, Lebanon or somewhere like that. It's like he's a peace envoy, and he's created so much mayhem in the Middle East. And and now he's he's an ambassador for all of it. Can you believe it? An ambassador for peace. Me and my wife Shirley. Shirley. There's a lot of stuff on the internet about Mr. Blair, and I'm going to yeah. say this is allegedly, folks, because um, I can't afford his wife to come and do a barrister bit and sue me, but. So allegedly he was a cross-dressing sexual deviant and he was arrested. Is it called cottaging when you go in a man's toilet and you try and, you know, show your dick or something? And he he was arrested for whatever that's called. And when he went when he went to the police station again, folks, allegedly he gave his name as Linton Blair because his name is Anthony Linton Blair or, or don't yeah. put me on this folks. I, it's too much stuff in the world to learn, but this is just what, what I was re- what I, what I was reading up on quite a while back and because he gave his name as Linton Blair. Obviously it didn't go on his criminal record. He created a false persona, walked out the cop shop. And of course they couldn't then, you know, they, couldn't then re-arrest him because they they had false names and then when you see what he did uh in the iraq fiasco yeah where the whole country was going no well not the whole country obviously the tabloid readers were believing everything that they read but and and the other papers as well but and what was it a million people marched in london to say no we don't want to go and bomb Innocent, innocent people mm. in Iraq, and Blair got up there and went, um, but uh, forty-five minutes, we're all going to be dead in our bed, and everyone's like, we. And then, then that that scientist was it, David so and so came Kelly. out, Kelly, Kelly David was Kelly, and said, supposedly commit suicide. Yeah, he said, no, that's a load of horseshit. Iraq doesn't have any, you know, this this capability, which was subsequently proved. He rocked oh, yeah. up. Yeah. He, he, actually, he, actually, he actually used David Kelly's white paper to prove his narrative and then found out that the white paper is actually written by a college student. And then two two days later, he was found dead in his garden, Kelly. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, you know, but I think we know from time and time again, we we, we, we see it on the telly, whether it's a shoggy, you know, you've got the the, 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 the journalist that got killed in the, um, the, the embassy. Yeah, it was murdered and nothing was done. Yeah. Uh, this, right. this is money, money corrupts. We've had Epstein. 
We've had Epstein, you know, uh, was was a, was a you know was a renowned paedophile and was visited by all you know royalty and all the celebrities from around knew what he was about. Mm. You know, when Michael Jackson was taking kids into his room into his little fantasy land, you know, and people knew. But what you know, what was the difference between him and the, and the guy at the end of the street is that he had millions of pounds to pay to pay the family off fifty million pounds. You know, money corrupts. Money is corrupts everything. You know, and unfortunately, this is what the capitalist system did. But you know, there's, there's a there's a, a two tier system again. If we do anything wrong, and I'm you know, but I've done some mad shit in myself, and I've done some wrong, and I expect to be punished for it. But these people do do wrong, and then they walk away from it. This is crazy, you know. Like, and they, what sort of message does that send out to the kids? It says if you're a, if you're a, if you're a rapper and you've got hundreds of millions of pounds, you're an MP and you're wealthy and everything else, and you 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 know you 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 prosper that you can buy your way of, of anything, and that's what and that's all it does. You know, we have a, we have an internet now that, you know, you can go on, you know, that you go on the dark web. I don't know if you go on the dark web. If we imagine the, 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 the web as, as an iceberg and it sticks out that much, this is what we see on it, you know, Google, yeah. Apple, whatever else. And then we look underneath it, the, the ice thing, it's like, it's like a mile deep. That's the dark web. There's, 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 uh, there's, there's everything sold on there from kids, child abuse, child pornography, paedophilia, everything. Are we allowed to happen? You know, this is supposed to be one of the things that's supposed to be enhance our life. And all he's done so far is destroy young kids' lives, prostitution. There's, there's sex tourism all around the world. This is what it's creating because they're not prepared to police it like it should be policed. You know, I know, I know, I'm, I'm all for a free, free enterprise. I'm all for free love and all for free speech. But we have a thing at the tip of our hands here that's corrupting generations and generations and generations because they're allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we can crack any single code. We just cracked. Um, the phone systems over here, you know, where there was phones, um, uh, the Encro phones, you know, the Encro phones now, they said they was impossible to crack, you know, and, and they've been they've been looking into them for the last two years. They've just nicked like 54 million pounds in cash and drugs. Great. Because they've taken it off the street, which I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased about. Organised crime, they, they, they've dismantled it, which is great. But if they can get into that, why can't they get onto into the dark web? They've got every single police force and every single FBI and everything else, and they can't crack that. You know, this is crazy. Every now and every every now and then you'll see what what someone getting getting arrested, whether it's Silk Road or something else, for selling hundreds of millions of pounds worth of uh, heroin, coat to these kids and sending it to their front door. Well, where were these people that were supposed to protect, you know, protect us? You know, this is crazy. You know, I, I go down Camden Town all the time, and all I see is people selling drugs on the street. And I and you know, I, I don't mind a bit of puff. You know, when I was younger, and I don't think it's going it's going to be that bad, but it's still a gateway drug. And, it's, you know, and if you're going to buy it, it should be underground. But they sell it openly down now. And the police come around once every six months and say, we've made a, we've made a massive, massive impact by nicking two people. You know, and they wonder why they, they're down there in their droves, these young kids selling drugs, because there's just not the will to actually go down there and stamp it out because they're too busy coming to my ass for fucking parking ticket. You know, because they're, all, all they're doing is, you know, they can't, we don't create anything in this country anymore. The only thing we create is fucking parking fines. I get every time I go into a, a car junction, I get a, I get a fine. If I if I speed more than twenty miles an hour, I get a fine. You know, I think I've had about eight hundred quid fines in the last year, and I don't even know the signs. You know, they change the signs every week, and all they're doing is that you know, we we are the best at services in the world. We don't manufacture everything, so what we're going to do now to create a whole new revenue stream in this country is to find find the life out of everyone, and it's just crazy. You earn it, they fine you. It's crazy. It's just mental.
When you talk about the iceberg, Terry, it also makes me think of this thing that's going on in, in our celebrities in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, this agenda, which is clearly to corrupt everybody, especially the, the minds of our children, all this satanic shit that they put out, all this bloody, you know, a celebrity does that. The next thing he's got the biggest chat show in America. It, and, and that's all in plain sight. It's like the dark web, but but it's all visible and people still still don't see it. What's what is that about? You know, you've got to, you've got to look at the, you know, it's, it's like you've got to look at the uh, television and all these all these uh, shows as the crumbs. You know, people need crumbs. You know, the crumbs, you follow the crumbs and then you get into the dark web and that's it. You know, so they see these celebrities, they see these celebrities and, you know, look at the Kardashians. You know, I, I, I you know, I've, I've watched it a couple of times, but I can't see any, any reason uh, for, on God's earth why these people are worth 100 million pounds and, and 200 million pounds. And I think one of the girls has just earned a million, a billion pounds from, uh, from, uh, from doing makeup. And they've got no, nothing to offer. All they do is bicker and everything else, you know, and then they've got no talent whatsoever. This is what people want to aspire to. You know, to wearing your bum three miles away from your your back, you know, and your cleverage right out here. It's just crazy. I just I just don't understand anymore. It's like a different world. I've come out of prison to a different world. You know. Yeah. Well, to me, it's obvious they want to destroy everyone's identities. They they want to take you as far away from natural law, which some people might call God or nature or whatever you want to call it. They want you to 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 cut you off from that beautiful connection with the universe, which, yeah. which um, is, is an amazing thing once you discover it. And they want you bickering, ugly, obese, angry, aspiring to the, the false gods of, of these, these celebrities and, and all, this, um, all this kind of thing. At the same time, they want to encourage deviancy, which yeah. is why this Cuties film that Netflix have just put out, which is just beyond belief you know literally 11 year old girls being put into a porn film and 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 it's being defended because the power that these the, the this whole net is so powerful all the people will come out and and defend it and they do it so cleverly that makes yeah. the people that think it's in, inappropriate for 11-year-old girls to be stripping off and all this sort of stuff, it makes them look like they're in the wrong, right? All this, you know, sort of social justice movement, again, it all it, it, it's yeah. all just to muddy the water and take everyone away from their true connection with life. You see, you know, you, you see big corporations, yeah? You know, you see all, all the clothing manufacturers and everything else, you know. What do they do? They couldn't, they couldn't sell their products. So what do they do? They, they sexualise young kids. They so what they did, they got boob tubes, they got they got shorts, they got you know everything. And what they've done, they brought everything down to kids' sizes. Now the kids can dress exactly how the mums and how, and how people can go clubbing. Got a little girl in high heels, makeup, boob tube, and a little a little miniskirt going out. You know, what does that say? It says, you know what, we can't sell this, you know, we've I, I sold it to this generation now. So how do we how do we monetize the next generation and, and, and use them and make and sexualize them straight away? Let's make it in their science. Can you believe they actually do this? And then they say exactly what you just said. They start complaining about it and say, you know, well, this is really wrong. You know, 
And then what I do then, that publicity then goes out across across the world. And then all of a sudden, every little girl wants to dress like that. Mm. But, you know, but they do it under the guise of actually getting it out there to show you that it's wrong. <laughs> and then they put the prices down half price. And then every mother and their daughter is going out buying makeup for their kids, the slettos or whatever it is, and, and shorts. It's just crazy. But, you know, it's, unfortunately, it's, it's, a, it's a corrupt society we live in, brother. Yes, you know? it is. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it when I was in prison, you know, the gateway to, to, to the world was through my television. You know, I, I saw, you know, all, all the, the immigration immigrants coming over on the boats, you know, I saw little kids. You know, I remember, I remember that little kid, um, I think his name was, he was dead on the beach. Little kid in a red T-shirt. Uh, I remember writing a poem about it, you know. And, I, you know, these people were, were, were running away from a war that we created. And we and we what we did we let them come over on little dinghies, you know. We never they, 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 you know the courage to actually take these people and put them on the fucking dry land, you know, and put them put them somewhere safe and everything. Else. These are little kids. We let them die on the beaches, surrounded by crisp packets, you know. And we we say that we're a caring caring society, you know. Mm. When the, when the, when you know most of the wealth, you know, I think you know three percent or nine percent of the wealth is is three percent of fucking is the population, you know. This is crazy. We can wipe out poverty around the world by just taking that money and actually using it. What can you do with 20 or 100 billion pounds in the bank? Why can't you just save all these countries from, from you know, feed these countries? We have to, we have to sort of, there has to be something in the future where we say, you know what? You know, we, we encourage prosperity. We encourage entrepreneurism. But you know what? You know, you can't leave this in a bank. You can't make yourself so powerful that countries will bow to you and that you come into their into their land and build castles so you can then bring kids into that place and abuse them like Epstein did, you know, in Mexico. You know, we have to we have to stop this craziness, you know, and uh, you know, I, I just hope it's in my in my in my time. I hope I, I live to see all this. Because all I see all I see is 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 it getting worse and worse. Are you familiar then, Terry, with this Q movement? Um QAnon, it's this big wave in in, in America of people that uh, and again, for anyone listening, I'm not I'm not making any judgment. I'm just just saying what I understand of um, people that believe Donald Trump is a man that is is. Um, how can you say he's like the front person of a. Of an all organization of top military brass and no. the like that are exactly against what we've been talking about and that are out to dismantle these slavery rings and, and all the child stuff that goes with it to realign the, the monetary system in, a, in, in with respect to taking the greed, the interest, the profit out there, making it just more of a system of exchange. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I'm, I was sent a lot of intelligence yesterday and I'm going to be honest, it's very difficult to understand. It's quite technical and it's, there's a lot of uh, um, like acronyms and stuff in it that you would only know if you've been doing this a while, but, and they're saying that when you see president Trump travel around to see these world leaders, he is in fact, getting them to sort of uh, kowtow isn't the right word, but to submit to this um, system that he's trying to implement. Are you familiar with any of that? 
no, no. You know, I, you know. I think any anyone who tries to enter a system that helps, that helps. It's got to be. It's got to be good. You know. You know. If, even if it is disguised as the devil. You know, as far as they're concerned. You know, they demonised uh, Donald Trump. You know. Um, you know. He's. You know, I don't really follow Donald Trump, but from what I've seen of, of, of what he's doing, you know, with unemployment and everything else, it was, it was growing. It was growing. And it was growing. You know. So you know what? You know, I've, I'm. I'm all for having businessmen run a country because politicians have fucked it up forever. You know, we've had people come out of university. They've got, you know, they've got good education. They've got, you know, rich family, rich parents, and they've got pedigree. And they come on and they think they can run a country. You know, I think we need people, not necessarily about Donald Trump, but, you know, he seems to be the man at the moment that they're all picking on. You know, people that actually will will make the country run as as productively as they can and, and give that wealth back to the people, whether it's employment, whether it's in housing, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in it. Anyone that does that is in my book is a great person, you know, that's going to help help the common man. I think he's gone around in the wrong, wrong way. I think he's alienated uh, certain um, um, cultures in, in, in America, the Mexicans, um, you know, the blacks, you know, he, you know, but, you know, I, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't good before he took over. You know, I thought when Barack Obama took over, I thought that he was going to, he was going to really shake it up, but he never. He just, he just, he was just a sheep in white wool, as far as I was concerned. He, he never done nothing. He, he done exactly what he was supposed to do, was to figure it, you know. And then he's got the audacity to actually start screaming that, that Donald Donald Trump is doing all his bollocks, you know. So you know, he never done nothing. You know, Nelson Mandela was a, was a, was a great example for me. You know, he came out. You know, he, you know, he, he stopped the war in South Africa. You know, by 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 giving out the word peace. You know, let's love each other. Let's forgive and everything else. And I expected so much from him. I love Nelson Mandela and I love everything he stood for. I went on Nelson Mandela marches, free man that Nelson Mandela. I thought what he did, you know what? He still never left the legacy of what I thought he was going to leave. You know, I thought that he was going to take all them shanty tans and, and, and fuck them off and actually put proper, proper housing developments on them. He had he had an opportunity to change the fucking South Africa and the world in in, in our eyes. But what did he do? He made a massive compound for himself and his family. He put people in, in control that, that, that were, were corrupt, you know, and, and he basically became a figurehead when he could have done so much. And, this, and I think the same was, was for Barack Obama. He could have done so much and done so little. Yeah, I, I, again, these people arrive in positions of power for a reason. And it ain't for me and you, Terry, is it? You know, it's no. not the... The uh, Nelson Mandela, one of one of the first things he did was spend millions of of the taxpayers' money on fighter jets, right? Yeah. And I'm not suggesting he decided to do that. It's it's this system. He's there yeah. for a reason, and it's not for the good of the people. With Obama, for me, it's it seems quite black and white. In Literally. as far, in as far as he. He hated the racism he's, he was subjected to as a black man in America, knowing that in himself he's quite an intelligent guy and he's a equal to everybody. And I think, I think, I just, I think he went to the dark side, literally went to the dark side in order to get his puppet position, to get his, to make up for his um, lack of ego, loss of identity. And his actions while he was in power, the continued drone strikes and all this, the, the yeah, taking away, yeah. 
Do you know what? I've got, I've, I've got these. These are my these are my grandkids. Yeah, I've got the Lorel, Freya. It's a Norwegian name. Uh, Emmanuel and 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 Shemi. Yeah, mm. and Robin. You know, we've got all mix a mix. We've got a very diverse uh, family. It's all mixed race, mixed cultures, and everything else. You know, I say that we don't see color, but you know what? There's a lot of people in this country still see color, and they're still racist, and they're still bigoted. But you know what? I know from fact from our family and lots of families that I know in my area, we don't we don't necessarily see colour, we just see the kids and we see people. You know, we don't see us when I mean, you ask me when we first come on, is it, is it a black issue, is it a white issue, is it a this issue? It's a kid issue. Young kids are getting killed, whatever colour they are. I've got a very diverse family, you know, and uh, you know what? I, you know, all I want to see is a better future for all them, you know, and that's and that's and that's what we why we do what we do. That's why we started a knife crime. I'm also an ambassador for the Forward Trust. You know, which, which is about, you know, saving people coming out of prison uh, who've got a drug addiction and everything else, and then finding them employment, finding them rehabilitation centres where they can go in and actually go to rehabilitation centres that actually work instead of just take money. Um, yeah. I'm also I'm also a member of the, of the, um, the Band of Brothers, an organisation with 1,200 members nationwide uh, that we, we set up um, uh, to help young men and men of all ages from, from, from 18 to 70 years old who self-isolate. And they don't get an opportunity to come out and meet other men because men don't trust other men. So what we've done, we've all, we've got this organisation which started in Brian about 12 years ago. And, and what we do, we, we 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 have a weekend where they come and it's all men. So it's only men, unfortunately, no women. And they learn to trust other men. They learn then to go to the grieves. And then we train them as mentors to go back in the community and bring other guys in, stop them self-isolating, stop them helping with their mental health problems, but give them a social network that they can actually you know, they can actually join, you know, and, and, and inspire others, you know, because as much as these guys, you know, later in life, they, they self-isolate and they, they sort of withdraw from the world, whether their wife died, they lost their job, or they separate. They've got so many life skills that they can share with the young kids. It's, it seems crazy that they're, they're languishing in these, in, these in, their, in their rooms, you know. It so we, we, we get that. amazing. Yeah. Amazing, mate. That's just, mm. it's what lost young men need, isn't it? Well, you know, it's, you know, over this period of lockdown, we, uh, you know, we, 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 we furloughed. You know, everyone was furloughed and everything else. But you know what? I, I got in touch with um, a, a lady called Vicky Patterson on Julie Shaw. I was talking about Julie Shaw the other day yeah, earlier, saying, you know, this word. You know what? Absolutely fantastic lady. I also, uh, yay hire, got in touch with them, uh, who had a great big massive warehouse. And we put a call out to all the organisations, uh, you know, Walker's Chris, you know, everyone, everyone the, the mill, bread, hoves, everywhere. And we expected to get some so a few donations. So we, we we got a thousand boxes to start with, and we thought we'd get get these boxes and put some food in and give them out to the homeless and everything else. Do you know what? I think we got about 20 lorries of of uh, of donations. And you know what? I can remember getting the forklift and thinking, God, what have we done? You know, and over that period we'd done ten thousand care packages. These weren't small boxes, these were big boxes, you know, and we gave them to the homeless, to the elderly, because our government said that all the homeless would be put in, into, into hotels, into accommodation. You know what? I went out on the streets of Hampstead, Camden Town, King's Cross. I saw homeless people. I saw people with mental health problems. I saw old people who never had anything to eat. So we spent, we spent 10 weeks giving that to them. And then and after that, the lockdown eased and the, and the foods came back into the shops. I had people phoning me up from, from in, the, in the country saying, that's an old guy. I remember one old guy. She said he's 100 years old. He's living on his own still. He won't go into care. Can you take him a care package, Terry? It took him 15 minutes to answer the door. I've got it on, on my, 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 my Twitter. 
and he came to the door and he said, oh, you know, I said, I said, so-and-so sent me, here's a care package. And what I'm going to do, bro, I'm going to come around every week until the, till the, till this is over. But we've done 10,000 care packages. I met so many really great people. So, you know, people are owners. They're not owners because they want to be. They're owners because they've got mental health problems. They've been divorced and they've, they've hit the skid road. But you know what? They've all got life stories. You know, they've all, they've all been there and done it. You know, and all they need is an opportunity to get back. But we seem to, you know, I, I was down in the city the other day. As I said, we've done a knife crime. And I watched all the, all the coffee shops and everything else. I see everyone with their coffees and lattes, five pounds, six fucking lattes. And next to them, I saw people begging on the floor, dressed in, in dirty rags, clothes. You know, this is a society that we, we you know, that says that we care for our, our people. And these people were starving on the fucking streets. They were dressed like tramps, you know, literally. You know, and, and then you've got people spending 10 pounds on a latte. It just really begs belief, you know. So I'm being a born-again Christian now and being someone that wants to give something back. We spend all our time helping the community and going out and doing this, whether it's, it's painting old people's uh, houses, their front doors, or helping with knife crime now. I get so much satisfaction from giving instead of spending a lifetime from taking. So you know what, you know, so for me it's about trying to install that install that, that that sort of ethos in our kids now that it's, you know, don't wait for it to come because it ain't going to come. You know, the gangs are going to be there, okay. But nothing's going to come and land in your lap. It's really important you get out there and you come and you start helping. Because you know what? You know, when you say that, you know, come to me and let me do the rest. You know, I don't want for nothing. You know, since I became a Christian, I don't want for nothing. And all I do is go out and help. I've I, I got a nice home in Hampstead, got a nice dog, nice girlfriend and a couple of kids here. Yeah, my, all my grandkids. But you know what? I never have to worry about money or nothing, you know, because I don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go out, <laughs> you know, I don't put myself on any, any, any stress. But the more good work I do, it doesn't matter, you know, you know, you know, I, you know, I'm not, you know, I had a young guy, he's 42 the other day. I see him every single day. He's got two lovely kids that go to school across the road from me, and he was a bundle of laughs, you know, joy, joy this guy, uh, Elvin, his name was, and. Uh, he got diagnosed the other week with uh, with a tumor in his lung, and and the tumor had gone to his his uh, his brain, and he had stage four cancer. You know, in, in the space of a week and a half, he's died. He's forty two years old. You know, so I have to I have to say, you know, I, I, I'm extremely lucky I am to be here. You know, because it could be so much worse. You know, so you know, I, I thank every day. You know, bless God that I'm here. Yeah, and it's it's called gratitude, isn't it? It's an, an essential part of living a balanced and uh, fulfilling life mm. terry what at what point did jesus come into your life was it like a sort of seminal moment or was it a gradual thing i think i, I think i've always had a belief but because of the life the life i led you know i couldn't i couldn't walk into a church so i'd probably catch on fire you know um <laughs> you know i think but you know every i went into, i remember going to prison on this sentence when i got my eight years and you know, I've, I've been extremely lucky. I've been, I've been, I've been knifed. I've been macheted. I've been stabbed in the chest. I've been stabbed in the back. Stabbed in the leg. I've been shot at, and I've never died. <laughs> you know, so I always felt, I always felt I was, I was blessed. I always felt there was, there was someone looking after me. You know, and I just looked at that. But then I went into prison, and and I, there was one part of the cell that the, the sun shone in, and there was a cross there. And it was the only part of the cell. It was like a, a layer of light. So I picked up the cross and put it around my my neck. You know, on that whole sentence, I had nothing but good luck. I never had no fights. I then got assessed to go to Grendon because I was a little bit off key um, because I tried to escape. Um, I ended up knocking a police officer out when I went to production. They said, Terry, 
you're crazy, you're a fucking, you're a nuisance, you're a, you're a demon. You know, so we suggest that you go and do this this therapy. So, you know, I've done it. And you know what? I felt like I was blessed all the way through them because I met some of the, some of the probably most dangerous men in, in, in England. You know, some of the, you know, there were child killers, there were serial killers, people that killed their whole family. And I came through that unscathed. You know, so I, 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 you know, I, I'm very fortunate. You know, and, I, and, I, and that was the darkest place of my life ever. You know, I, I remember trying to go to church and I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to go to church. How the fuck can God come into this place? This place is just so evil. And then, and then I thought, no, I'm not going to go. And then I, I left there and then I went to a, a Spring Hill. And then, and then I, 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 for some reason, I walked into this house and I walked upstairs and it had a loft. And in that loft, it had a church. And I walked in, it had stainless glass windows and lofts. And it was the most comforting, beautiful sight. The, 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 the light was coming in. It was really peaceful. And, and, I, and I had a moment. I just cried. That's <laughs> great. You know, but I, I, I could never I'd ever understand what happened. You know, and I, and I spoke to my daughter after. I said, you won't, you won't believe this. I had a moment. It's, I just felt this really, really, it was just crazy. And then I, and I ended up, you know, I spoke to the people and, and, uh, and uh, there was the running the church. And I said, I had this moment. And they said, like, you know, great, you know, would you want to get baptized? And I said, you know what? You know, I've done so much wrong in my life. And they said, you know what? God has always said, you know, come to me and let me do the rest. And I can remember I had a full submersion with my three girls there. And it was just wonderful. It was just really was so great, you know, I was fully submerged. I came out. And since that day, I've, you know, I've tried to lead a completely straight, honest life. That was the moment I said, you know what? With the therapy I did, which helped me immensely, and the, and, the, and the other ingredient was faith, you know, and I had no other option, you know. I, I have to go straight. I have to lead a straight life because the minute I come off that path is the minute I lose my girlfriend, my home, my kids, and my freedom. Mm. And that's what yeah, I'm if, you, if you follow the philosophies of Jesus, you can't really go far wrong. No. For me, Terry, it, it goes all the way to the end, though is I'm prepared to die for what's right because yeah. that's, and that's what Jesus did, right? He, he, yeah. he knew, again, it relates to this current situation where he said, bless them, Father, for they know not what they do. Yeah. That yeah. sums up modern society for me. All these people wandering around, not a clue what, what's really driving what they're seeing in their mainstream media. And, yeah, I'm just a man of principle, and 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 I don't know if it, I call myself a warrior, but I mean an ex-marine. I don't know. I I just think that you've got to stand up. You've you've got to see the world for what it is and its entirety. You then yeah. got to stand up for what's right, and you you then got to be an example, especially if you're a parent, and they will come for you. Because they came yeah. to Jesus, didn't they? They will come for you, and you've got to be prepared to pay, in some ways, what is the ultimate sacrifice. Um, but in other ways, when you realise, you know, we're all carbon molecules, we'll go back to this beautiful planet, and then we'll come again in another another beautiful form. It might be a part of a rock, <laughs> but yeah. it, it's... It, yeah, it's, it, the story of Jesus is very... <laughs> you know very a very powerful one and to think that if he existed and i don't i won't profess you know i don't think i'm going to find out in my lifetime 
I, I just, he, he came to me at like my worst moment, his yeah. face in that, in that torture and that suffering that he was put through. And I felt that I was going through the same as a, as an ostracized drug user, you know, problematic drug yeah. user. Everyone turned their back on me. I was, you know, everyone wanted me to, to live my life their way. People weren't afraid to drop you. One person come round my house in a year and a half. That was yeah. an, another eight, eight angel, my friend Rob. And I just pictured that that Christ's face as he was being tortured to death. And he still loved all people. And he was still prepared to pay the ultimate sacrifice for doing yeah. what was right and standing up to this evil money system. Yeah. What he could see was was enslaving all of us and, and looks what looks what surprise, surprise, look what's happened. Yeah. yeah. Can we, Terry, go back because we haven't um talked about your time in Grendon and, and but we haven't also talked about your career as a as a as a I feel rude saying criminal, but <laughs> that's that's call it what it is, brother. Yeah. You know? what, what was it like going on your first job? What what did you knock off that that give you a buzz, I suppose? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, as from a very early age, I was um I was at grafting. I was at, uh, at nicking. Um I think you know the, you know the first few I did was when I was about 10 years old. You know, I can remember going down to the old aero shelters in, in Camden and and they go all over London. And and I got a key to them and, and an XOR. And I went with a couple of my mates and we went around to every single uh, station. And and first it was an adventure. And then I, I noticed that on every single train station, there was a cigarette machine and, and a chocolate machine. So I then spent the next couple of months um, doing every every cigarette machine and every every chocolate machine. And I, then I had tons of cigarettes. That was a t- as a 10-year-old kid. I then was down at King's Cross on the train lines and a train came past with loads of cars. And uh, so, you know, I ran along and jumped on. And um, I opened the door, and, you know, and it was a long uh, transport for cars. It was about a mile long, or if not, if not longer. And I opened the door, and there was uh, all uh, car radios. So I jumped back off, and I and I got some black bags and, a, and another friend of mine, and we waited for a couple of days, and, and the next one came along really slow, and we ran along and we jumped on it, and I, he, he he got in and, and done all the radios and up, and I held the bag, and as as we filled out, we, we put it over the side. And we went about five or six miles down the track, but we had, I don't know, we had about 25 or 30 radios. And it was our biggest score as a young kid. I think they were worth £10 each. And that sort of infused me. Was, um, it, and a, I, was it a bummer yeah. when they when they started putting the key code in the radios? Do you know what? You know, I, was, I was out of it by then, thank God. You know what the funny thing was? It's the same with the, 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 the wheel nuts. Remember the wheel nuts they put on cars? They said you can't yeah. nick the wheels. So, because they got this special wheel nut that you can only open it from the from the from the special thing they left in your car. Yes. So instead I... of nicking your so instead of nicking your your wheels, there, they were breaking into the car, smashing it, and then to take this wheel nut off to fucking take the wheels off. So it was it was the same with the the new radios. You know, they put these new face off radios, and what did everyone do? They hide them under the seat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, this is crazy, but but yeah, but for me. You know, I, I got a fair amount of enjoyment out of, of doing that as a kid, as a 10-year-old kid. I then went into care, and, and that was the consequence of me getting in trouble, nicking cars, breaking into shops. 
And there was a price to be paid for doing it as a kid. It cost me my whole life, you know, being a criminal at that stage. And I went into a home, I lost my family uh, because I was bunking off school, you know, pickpocketing down the West End um, and nicking handbags and everything I was doing. I was such a, I was a bastard kid, I'm not going to lie. Um, I kept getting in trouble and kept getting in trouble. And then I went to the home. Um, I then graduated to um, to, a uh, to a community home and I left there when I was 16 years old or 15 years old. And I met I met some older boys and, and they're... they're they encouraged me to do uh, sort of armed robbery. So we were doing we were doing uh, post offices and banks. I think some fifty or sixty post offices in in the space of a couple of years. And then I got another sentence, uh, four years in in a man's prison. Where do you um, where do you, where do you get a shooter then to to go and do the? Do you just buy that on the black market? Yeah, you know you you know it, where I used to live was it was it was predominantly a, a, a villain's area. You know, Camden Town, King's Cross, Whitechapel, uh, the Angel was where armed robbers came from, drug dealers lived. You know, we were we were at our corner of London. You know, I could go into any pub, any club at the age of 15, 16, buy someone a shotgun. You know, and as I got older, I could buy anything else, you know, which I won't go into. But, you know, anything up to a, to a you, know, you know, I could buy anything. But at that particular moment, you know, the, 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 end, the end thing was, was a, a snub-nosed uh, revolver and a sawn of shotgun, which I bought. And then I went on the crime spree. Um, I was a big, I was a big kid, and and um, with a balaclava, and I just started doing everything. We just, you know, it was, it was just uh, like taking candy from a baby. Um, would you have been prepared to shoot someone, or is it just for the intimidation? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know what? It was definitely for intimidation. I would never intentionally hurt anybody, especially a security guard or someone who works in the post office or bank. You know, it's just not what you do. You know, you know, over the years, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. My dad was an armed robber. Um, him and him and his, his associates they killed a security guard. Um, so I was always when I went on. I actually, when I actually took the shotguns on the robberies, I actually took the bullets out, which which was which was was, was unheard of. You know, even the guys that I worked with, I said, "You got to put fucking shells in." I said, "No, I'm not." Like, why would I do that? Because if the guy grabs hold of the gun and I pull it by mistake, he's going to die. So no, I never ever took any any ammo on there. Um, you know, but I, I actually I was quite successful. You know, I was actually I was actually quite successful as a robber. Um, unfortunately, I got caught. <laughs> a bit of a contradiction. So, eh? so tell us, then, Terry, because it's it, I don't know if it's just me or whether a lot of young men go through this fantasy, but you you always picture that perfect heist and you have got this fucking big bag of money. And it's going to last you, but it doesn't work like that, does it? You you spend it quickly, and you know what's you know you know yeah. The more you know, the more money you get, the more you spend. You know, I was, you know what most people were earning about two around two hundred pound a week then, and we were nicking like three and a half thousand pound a day. Uh, you know, I, I rented out a flat, I bought a nice car, um, I never had a license. Uh, you know, and but you know what? There's a price to be paid. You know, I, I was going out every night, I was drinking, I was taking drugs, I was womanizing. And, and eventually I walked home and I thought I was Charlie Big Potatoes and I opened my front door um, and the, the whole the whole place came alive with police officers and they, they gave me a, a severe beating and then took me to, um, I think it was Hendon, um, at the end of the unit, robbery squad, you know, and, and then, you know, and then I, got, I got four years. And then over that four years, I, I was determined to come out of prison and change. Uh, I then got married uh, as, soon as, I, as soon as I left prison. And, and everything was going all right. And then I, I, I sort of uh, had, a, had a breakdown with my girlfriend. She, she left each other and broke up. And, uh, and I, I was doing the jump-ups at the time. And I ended up going to Spain. 
you know, to try and get away from it. And then I end up driving Puff from Marbella to Valencia. And, you know, and I never had a care in the world. I, I didn't care if I got caught or spent time in a prison, in a, in a Spanish prison. I got so good at it that I was, I was actually doing it every other week. You know, I was buying it. You know, I started off with 50k, 100k, 200k, and then I went up to 500k every other week. And then I sent it back to 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 my friends or my associates. And and then I while I bought a big villa, nice cars, and I thought I'd practice it. You know, and then I I was working in Amsterdam. Uh, was this a puff was coming in from Morocco then? I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, it was coming in from Morocco. Yeah, and, and then one of my favourite films has got the business. Have you seen it with Danny Dyer? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, oh, you know, it's, it's a little bit like that actually. Yeah. We was yeah. living, we was living the life, taking cocaine and and just just womanizing and doing everything else. You know, it was it was very, you know, I can, I can remember being in, in Marbella and uh, you know I can remember this guy this guy coming coming down with a big sandwich board saying repent 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 and come to Jesus. And we was a nouveau riche then, and and you know what I look at that moment in time and, and I when I talk to kids who want to and I'm asking them to change their life or in games, I now know what they see. They see me with that sandwich board. In Marbella, trying to convert them, I know, and sometimes how useless it can be. But I know that guy actually went out of his way to try and change people's lives. He may have planted the seed that day, and that's why I go out every day with my sandwich board, and I hope to plant the seed that some of these kids will change their lives. You know, so yeah, so I, I, I always, I always, uh, I can always remember him coming, and I, you know, this guy's off, off, off key. He's crazy. Why would I? Why would I change my lifestyle? And become become a, a you know one of God's disciples when I could I could sleep around take drugs and drink and, and do everything I wanted it just it was just my life it was crazy you know reminds me of time I I was on a ship for a year and us twelve Marines went ashore in I think it was in Germany in Bremerhaven and there was a load of nuclear peace protest you know peaceful peace advocates on the on the harbour and they were holding up, they were trying to hand out leaflets about, you know, CND, a campaign for nuclear disarmament. And, you know, I was so young and naive, brainwashed, obviously, because it, it was back then I used to watch the news and stuff. And I remember, like, just pushing this fucking guy out of the way, thinking I was so self, you know, it was my right to, you know, what's he on about? We need war. We need these weapons. Um, it's funny you just said that. Just remind, <laughs> God, you you can be a dickhead when you're young, can't you? Uh, you know, you're 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 a protector position. You know, even if you know it's stupid, and that's that's it. You know, I I, I worked in Amsterdam doing these, um, cocaine. I even ended up in uh, Cambodia, uh, in a go down, uh, with with I think it was twenty eight tons of weed, packing it with them to send back. You know, so, so you know, it's been quite eventful. Enlighten us about this if you can, because I remember having been a you know full on on the dance scene back in the day, and quite an interesting time for lots of us, you know. But then everything, the pills went shit. It's some kind of chemical synthesis. It wasn't the ecstasy that that made the the uh, rave generation so popular. And then the speed, the speed went shit. Right. My theory is the ecstasy was because that tree that comes from Cambodia had all been chopped down. And the, the base was because I reckon the British government banned the mass, the mass sale of the chemicals you needed to make it. 
Do you know anything about that? Well, you know what, you know, um, I think with, with, with the speed, it's, it's, it's a derivative of an APAN. It's, cl- it's a cleaning product, yeah? It's called APAN. Um, and that's quite, you know, if you go to China, you can, you can get tons and tons of that. I don't think there's ever been a shortage of that. Uh, only, you know, it may be an embargo if they, if they stop that at that particular time. But APAN is, is a cleaning product that makes speed. Um, it's, it's quite a process, but, you know, you know, that, that, you know the, only, the only time it ever goes down is when you've got greed. You know, they make, they make it into blocks and then what they do, they then bring it over and then you know, you, you know, it, it comes in a paste. You then make that paste into five or eight. Now, what, what started happening, because there was an influx of ease, they then started making that, that four, eight into 16, and it sort of diluted it. It's the same as cocaine. When cocaine used to come in, it used to be about 84%, 86%. And then what happens? You've got greed, greed, greed came in. And then what happens? You then got people repressing. So they repressed it. So they put one key, they then repress it into two or three. But if you say, like, it's 8%, it then goes down and goes down and goes down. The time it hits the street is about 12%. And, and I think the cocaine on the street now is about 6%. So you're still spending exactly the same money. It's got all this, they press it with like Novocaine and stuff, don't they? And, and yeah, Novocaine, Magic. Magic is, is, um, is, a, is, is um, um, a paracetamol. And what happens when you press it? When you press it, 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 it's, it leaves a shine and, and, and um, it leaves a vein for it. So when you open a, a tequila of cocaine, you can only see the, the, the layers and what they did, that sort of replicated the layers and it gave you that shine. So they just assumed it came all the way. And what they used to do is wrap it up in balloons. So, and then they stamp it, they stamp it. So it looks like it's actually original come all the way. That's what they do with repress. As far as the, the, the ease were concerned, with the ease, you know, they were, they were, you know, you would get two or three points when they first came out of, of the MDMA speed and then a little bit of mix. But what happened as grief takes over, and, and it started going into the rave scene. The demand was, it was, was so immense. The way it started doing, instead of putting five or six points into an E, because, you know, it takes 10 points to make an E, yeah? Um, so you have, you know, five, three, and two mix, yeah? But what happened, they started then putting two in there. And, and what happens when you put a test in it, you test it, it still goes mauve, and then people assumed that they, um, they were getting a buzz. But what they needed then was they needed to take, when they needed to take one, they now had to take two or three. Because what and then what they what the the, the pushers said is and they said uh, well because your immune system is uh is getting used to it you now have to take more to get that same high so it's, it's the same as heroin you know as as you use heroin I've used heroin before um, you use heroin and all of a sudden that buzz goes you need a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more and it's the same with cocaine you know you 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 use I remember starting cocaine and loving it dancing making love and all of a sudden after after a few months you know I was on my own. You know, I don't want people around me. I want the lights off. You know, I'd do coke, the light would go off. And I, I would, I'd be walking around the house like that, listening. I was so yeah, paranoid. Yeah. The noise and, and it became something that was so brilliant. And, and I found it something that was really becoming psychotic and psychosis, you know, in me. And I, and I, it took me like 20 minutes to walk to the toilet and I was walking so slow. And that's what my life deteriorated to by taking drugs. And, and I try to show that when I talk to kids now. So, you know, what, you know it starts good. You know, it's, 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 you know, that's what drugs do. They lure you in and then they, be, then they, then they take over you. And it, that, it doesn't become enjoyable, no, but, but what it does become is addictive. You know, because every time you get bored, you know, every time I used to get bored, I used to, I used to want to fix. You know, and I used to, I had loads of money. I, was, I suffered from boredom. So I self-medicated, I took drugs, and, you know, it was only when, I, when I'd done therapy that I was able to deal with all that and realise that, 
I think one of the biggest lessons I, I learned from prison was, was how to deal with boredom. And that's, and, that, and that's what I learned at, at Grendon. When I first went to Grendon, I couldn't understand why there were so many plants. There was plants everywhere, plant, plants, plants, plants everywhere. And, and the place was immaculately clean. It was the cleanest place I've ever been apart from myself. Anyway, after a few weeks, because you wasn't allowed to use your turn in the daytime and you had to mix and talk. So after, after a few months there, I realised that I know now why it is the way. It's because I was getting cuttings of plants and I was fucking cutting them and repotting them, you know, because I wanted to see them grow. I was so bored of the place. And then when I got a job there, I, instead of spending 15 minutes cleaning and being bored shitless for the rest of the day, I then cleaned it and then I'd done everything to, to a standard that was like for a hotel. So then, so then I thought, you know, it's, it's sort of instilled an ethos in me that everything I do now, I, I give it 100%. If it's cleaning, cleaning the, the picture frames, if it's doing the windows, if it's doing gardening, and if it's doing care packages for the elderly, I won't do it. I won't do it until I do it properly. You know, and, and that's and that's how I learned that. You know, and, and and the other biggest lesson I learned was tolerance. You know, being around people that, that would come to me and say, you know, I just killed my I killed my daughter, that's why I'm that's why I'm here, Terry. You know, and I said, What happened? And they said, Well, you know, um I split up with my wife and, and I tried to commit suicide one evening, but the kids were asleep, she was in bed, I went downstairs and, and I was at the, at the kitchen table and I had, I had a bottle of whiskey. And I had some pills and I had a drink and I had a pill, I had a drink and I had a pill and, and, and I was going and I was crying. And, and he said, my daughter came down. And, and I said, well, what happened? And she, he said, well, she said, daddy, daddy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to heaven. And, and then he said, she said, can I come with you? And he said, yes, you can. So they played this little game of one pill for you, one pill for me until she passed out. But she didn't die. So he got a plastic bag and put it over her head. And then, and then, and then, you know, and then she died. You know, she was scraped, stressed, and all that. And he said she just died. And I was listening to this guy, you know, and I, and I'm being a father myself. I wanted, to, I wanted to kill him, you know. And then, but he tried to justify her death by she wanted him to die. And I said, why didn't you kill yourself? You know, he said because I never, you know. And I, and I, you know what? I listened to him. I listened to another guy who killed a kid. You know, people that rape people. You know what? And as much as I found it detestable, and and. You had to put their crimes aside. But I learned tolerance because I couldn't let their, their their deeds interfere with my therapy. Because if I'd have just whacked him, and then and then I'd have been kicked out of there, no violence policy, I'd have missed the opportunity to do therapy. So it was a question of I couldn't use their their offences against them. I had to put it to the side. I had to accept them for what they were, and then move on. So that really taught me one, two of the most valuable lessons in my life: tolerance and dealing with boredom, which is brilliant. You know. Blimey. Yeah, it, it was it was definitely a battle. You know, it's a psychological battle that, that you would never get in anywhere. You know, when you go to a normal prison, you listen to stories about birds, um, people leaving you, you know, the best job I've ever done. But here you learn you, you you never spoke about criminality. You spoke about you spoke about, you know, some of the most heinous crimes and you also spoke about, you know, you, you then spoke to that person after you put the crime there and you realised that but 90, 99% of that person is like you. He's got a family, he's got a mother, he's got a brother, he's got health issues, he, he trains, he breathes, he does everything. And then you start thinking, God, you know, there are so many people in this world that actually do some bad man crap, deviant crap. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They're not dressed as monsters. They come with a smile, you know? So, you know, what? It, it taught me, you know, where I used to accept people into my company because they walk like me, talk like me, and they came from the same area. I now... When I meet people, I normally give them a three-month period because normally over that three-month period, that little mask normally drops. 
the civilians drop so they start becoming who they are. Uh, but unfortunately, you never really know someone because, you know, you meet them every day, you pass them and everything else. You never really know them until you live with them, you know, unless you're with them 24 hours a day because you only, they only give you what they want. So, you know, I, I find myself looking at humanity and looking at human beings in a completely different way now. You know, I see them always corrupt. I see that, but also in the same vein, I also see that there is so much goodness in the world and, 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 and good people do good things. Uh, but there are people that do good things that are bad. You know, you have people going on, on uh, you know, if we take um, Jimmy Savile, for instance, raised £30 million for the hospitals, for the hospitals and everything else, molesting kids. Mm. So, you know, you get to the stage in your life and look at Rolf Harris. You know what I mean? So you get to the stage where you think, well, you know what? Who do you trust? Who do you actually really trust? Because people get into positions of trust you know, and helping people, but they've got an agenda. You know, whether it's a school teacher, a vicar, you know, vicars have, have, have had their fair share of, 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 of decency over the years and been protected. So, you know what? So, you know, you start, you, I, I sort of came out of Grindon thinking, the only thing that has actually changed is me. You know, and I'm more aware now. I'm more aware of my thoughts and feelings and, and, and my actions and other people. And the only person that, that, that I can control is me. So I've, I've, I can't speak for anybody else, not even my kids or anyone, because I don't, I don't really understand them no more. I don't understand people. And that's what Grendon done for me, you know, because I now see them as as, as one percent that I can't see that kills people and, and does the most heinous crimes. So it's, it's really it's been it's been enlightening. It's been one of the most fascinating ex- journeys and experiences I've ever ever done. And you know, and I've and I've learned some valuable lessons that I share. But it's also it's also made me so much aware of of, of the world we live in is so so corrupt and violent. Yes. Going back to this violence then, Terry, so, I mean, you've been knocking around with some seriously physically hard men, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I come, I come, I come from Camatan. You know, I, I, we, we got some of the, some of the biggest families uh, and some of the hardest families, underworld families in, in London, in, in England. Yeah. You know, and, I, and unfortunately, I was, I was friends with all of them. I was. Because I've got a mate, Mao, hello, Mao, if you ever get to watch this. And it, it, he's just self-confessed like the hardest man he knows. He just, it, I, I know when we're young, we say all this fucking stuff. But what I mean, though, is like, he's just seriously no one. And I saw this in the Marines as well. With, with There was one guy in the Marines. There's probably loads in the Marines, right? But there was one particular guy. You just didn't fucking mess with him. Even if it was a bit of back chat, he would just bide his time and then he'd pick a fucking entrenching tool, so a shovel, and just cave your fucking head in. Yeah, and he didn't give a fuck. It's it was just all ego, obviously. It's it's reactionary. Yeah. And I've I've never been in that brat. I mean, I, I can have a fucking punch up the same as an ex bloke. Uh but I know when I got someone six foot seven, six foot wide, and they're seriously hard, and they tell me to shut up. It, all right, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick pick my fucking battles. But how was it for you with that? I mean, were you ever intimidated, or did you feel like the top dog? Was it like no, no, you wouldn't let anybody put you down? No, I learned from a very early age that it didn't matter how big someone was. You know, or, or the size on it, or are they, you know, and if they were legends in their own nits, 
we had a, a, a certain uh, set of skills, as they say, that would take you down. You know, we don't fight by Queensbury rules. You know, if I if I was gonna if I was gonna have a go, I'd poke you straight in the eye, I'd rip your eyelids out. You know, I'd, I'd whack you straight in the throat. I wasn't going to knock people out. That's the, that's like that's in films. You now, I was taking you out with one punch in the throat, you can't breathe, and then I would take advantage of you. You know, I'd be punching you in the soda plexus. You know, and, and and we were doing some damage. You know, so I learned very early that it didn't matter. You know, the bigger you are, really, was was good for me because I knew that I was quicker. You know, and and you were get you weren't. Most people cover up with their faces. They're covering up there, but come straight through with a whack in the throat. You're going down one punch. That this is the original one punch knockout because you can't breathe. And I learned early. I saw I saw so much violence. I can remember when when we had a fight with some guys saying, "Come and my mate took took this guy in an arm lock, and he stuck both his fingers and ripped his eyelids out." And that was for me. It was a fucking, you know, at the time I thought that's a crazy thing to do. And then I, when I spoke to him, I said, "What the fuck did you do that for?" He said, "Because there was five of them." He said, "As soon as I'd done it, they all fucking backed off, didn't they?" And I realised the logic in his in his mind. And then I realised, you know, when we spoke, because he was in the same care home as me, and we was in Stanford House. He had to be so violent, and he had to do, you know, he would stick a pen in your ear, you know, to get put, get you off. But it wasn't about that he was vicious. It wasn't the fact that he was was anything other than this, me and you. It's the fact that he had learned and we had learned at very young age. You had to be the most violent to get get it off you. You know, if you know if you were if you if you put that persona out and you projected that that, that I would do anything what it costs to fucking get you away from me, then you're not going to pick on me. So when we was in kids zones, they learned very early that you only fuck with us the first time we went in there. You couldn't keep keep doing it to us because we you, you're going to get your bollocks chopped off. You're going to get a punch in the throat. Your eyelids in the guy. You're going to get a pen in your ear because that way we were prepared to do that. What they did, they picked on the other kids. And, and you know what? You know, their their loss, unfortunately, was our gain. And you know what? In that world, it was doggy, doggy dog. You know, I, I wasn't in the position to protect other kids from being beaten and that everything else to get molested and everything else. I was only there to look after me and look after my pal. And we looked after each other. And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, I, I learned from a long age that violence is, uh, is was my only currency and my only tool. You know, but I never enjoyed it. I think anyone that tells you they enjoy it, Joy violence or incredulity violence is a fucking idiot. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a complete fool. And people that tell you that they do armed robberies and you know, for a buzz and another idiots, you know, you know, it's purely monetary. You know, I never ever got a buzz. You know, there was a certain bit of power when I was dressed as a policeman when we used to go and do the the, the IT suites and we do the, we we done all the bonded warehouses, the security places. We would go in as a, as a fast response robbery squad. We used to take dogs and everything, and we'd serve a warrant. There was a certain amount of power in there, and I, and I, I must admit, I, I, I sort of quite enjoyed it because we never took any guns, we never took any koshies or anything. But I enjoyed the fact that we was we was doing what we was doing. But no, I don't think I ever got a buzz out of it. I never actually went into the game because I got a buzz. It was all because I it was monetary. I was dyslexic. I was told that I was thick. I was beaten, and and I was lazy. So you know, I had all the ingredients of being a fucking criminal. Mm. You know, and and thank God that I'm therapy. You know what? I've, I've actually, you know, managed to get some of them ingredients and shake them out and sieve and park them up. And I don't need them no more. I don't need to be violent anymore. You know, so, you know, so for me, I, you know, this, hopefully the second half of my life is just going to be so good. You know, I've done some really, you know, atrocious things in my time. I've done some really bad things I don't, you know, that I'm ashamed of. But I can honestly say that I've never killed anyone and I've never hurt anyone that basically didn't want to hurt me. You know, so, but, you know, I've never hurt a woman, never hurt kids. Um, so, you know, I, I still class myself as one of the good guys. And even though, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably Britain's most wanted at one time, you know, 
So, you know, and I've done some bad things, but you know what? I've, I've, I've turned the corner. I'm actually more than my past now. I don't let my, my criminality define who I am now. You know, I don't let people define who I used to be. You know, I'm, I am now me. I'm Terry Ellis. I'm knife crime campaigner, Banner Brothers mentor. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm who I am, you know, and I'm, and I'm trying my best to actually rectify it. I'm, I'm trying to rectify being made into the way I was, you know, because everything I learned was learned behaviors. You know, I never, I, well, I never, I wasn't born to be, be evil or, or to do what I did. I mean, I, my dad was an arm robber. My mum was a shoplifter. I was beaten. You know, I learned all them behaviors. They were learned behaviors. They weren't in me. So, you know, so a learned behavior, thank God, can be, can be, can be worked on and, and can be parked up. You know, I'm now able to, give myself a whole new set of tools now and be a very productive member of society. You know, I pay taxes now. I've got a business with my daughter called Scoff Mills and, and, and her boyfriend and my other daughter works. There's eight of us, no, nine of us working there now. We started it up two years ago and you know what? It's the most enjoyable thing I've, I've ever done. I work from six in the morning till six and seven o'clock at night. And what, what I used to hate about work, I actually love now because now we're doing something, I'm doing something with my daughters. So it's, it's been a real it's been a real rewarding uh, couple of years for me. And, and also, if you were, uh, just go away for you for one second. I just, I just, I wrote this book, HMP, Help Me Prepare for First Timers and Their Families, a guide to prison. If they, if they, if they adhere to this, they won't get in any trouble. It also recommends education and drug rehabilitation. Um, I wrote that with a, 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 a screw, so a prison officer with 44 years experience, a guy called Joe Chapman. Um, He's also um, a prison law consultant and author. Um, I've also just, you know, I wrote um, Brendan's, Brendan's Therapy Inside Story. So, you know, um, it's the same book as um, Living Amongst the Beasts. You still see that? And I've just done this one now. It's, it's about the last year of a resettlement prison. It's, it's, I'm actually, this is just a cover, uh, an author's copy, but it's going to be called The Resettlement Diaries, The Rise and Fall of the Brendan Experiment. Uh, sorry. Uh, the final countdown to my freedom. So you know, and that, that comes out in about about four weeks, and that's and that's about. I met so many people in the prison system that, that came through that revolving door of recidivism, and kept coming back and kept coming back. And I thought, what's going on here? And, you know, they're going to resettlement prisons, but they're all coming back. And I found out that when you got to a resettlement prison, that they were all leaving homeless. And you know what? And statistically, that white paper said that every single man that leaves prison leaves leaves with somewhere to live, and that's where a success. You know, we're rehabilitating and we leave with something to them. But unfortunately, that's another white smoking mirror's lie. Because what happens when you leave prison, you have to leave with a travel warrant. Now, to get that travel warrant, you have to give an address or a postcode. Even though you've got no fixed abode and you don't live anywhere, you, you can't leave prison without giving a postcode. That is now classed as a successful rehousing. So when they say 150 men left in prison in the last six months and they, they were left with somewhere to live, they're telling the truth. But the reality is that every single man of these prison with nowhere to live, leaves NFA, nowhere to live. And that's, and that's a fact. Mm. And, and if that fouls, you don't get that travel warrant. The day that you actually leave prison and you say, I'm going NFA because you refuse a travel warrant like I did, they then turn around and say, we haven't got a procedure set up for you, Mr. Ellis, that you could leave prison, NFA. However, you can leave right now if you give us a postcode or, or someone's address. So you have no other option but to do it. And then the funny thing is you come back to your place that you've lived all your life, the Camden Town, you go into your council and you say, I've lived here all my life. Can I get put on the housing place and get somewhere to live? And they say, I'm sorry, uh, but you intentionally made yourself homeless by going to prison. And for that, you'll have to come back in five years and prove to us that you lived in the borough. So 
There are so many people going through that revolving door of recidivism and being set up to fail. And that's why I wrote Resettlement, The Final Countdown to My Freedom. It chronicles the whole, the whole thing through there because I tried to get work. You know, I, be- I became a mentor, a peer mentor. I became a drug counsellor. You know, I became a, um, a chaplain orderly. I became on the prison council. I'm a qualified plasterer. I was actually teaching in the man prison, but I couldn't get a job outside prison so I could get a rent deposit scheme. I left with 50, 56 pounds. And then, and then I actually arranged to get a tent dropped off there that morning. I left with a tent and I've actually got the pictures to show it. So, so yeah, so it's all in the book and that's, and that's why I wrote it. But we had some great times there. I've I done a play at the Royal Courts and I, and I got baptized. I found faith. So in the darkest place, Life grows, life flows. I found God and I found my faith. So, you know, and, 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 I, and I had the opportunity to expose the, home, uh, the homeless project there and the CRC by going on all the radio programs when I came out of prison. And, and thank God they've now been suspended from, uh, from prison. Um, and now another organisation has taken over. And I think they're doing such a better job than the CRC ever did. So, you know what? The some good's come out of it. So, you know, it's been, it's been a real... Hey, you're a fucking year. legend. It's it's a breath of fresh air talking to you, Terry. Honestly, it is. It's it's um, it's just like you've done everything right, and you're so you're putting so so much out there. Yeah. Can can we just talk about one last thing that caught my eye? It's the Ocean's Eleven thing. Yeah. Is that is that in any way related to the t to, to the films that we've seen? No, the, you know, the, 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 what happened is that um, the, the, um, the press called us the Real Ocean's Eleven uh, game. Ah, okay. So because we were, we you know, we went the last one we did. I think there was, there was ten security guards, uh, biometric scanners. Uh, there was air, air locked doors, everything. And we walked in there. We walked in there in, in with the police uniforms, and and we took we took an old station dog with us, and we had we had police vans and police cars outside. So we looked we looked for all intensity. We looked like a real you know, a real uh, fast response to robbery, robbery squad. And they let us in. And, you know, and, and the good thing about it is, you know, we never hurt anyone. We never set our way to hurt anyone. We just said, look, you know, for our protection and my officer's protection, I'm going to cuff everyone in. We have information received that someone was coming in through the roof and they were dressed as a security guard. And then, and then, and then you know, so we have to cuff everyone here until I find out who you are. And so we cuffed them all. And that was pretty, you know, pretty, that was, that was okay. I put them in, in a, in a, in a um, the stairwell. And then we we brought in our other guys and we we took out all the motherboards. But I think we was in there for an hour. What was the what was the bounty? What were you after? Um, motherboards. Uh, you know, they're 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 motherboards. They're worth one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars or pounds. Um, and we we supposedly took five million it, pounds worth of of, of uh, motherboards. Sorry, sorry, Terry, for stupid people like me. What what motherboard so, means com- computer to me, right? Right, so, so, say if you've got a server, if you, you know you've got a server that does a whole block of flats. Um, now, that, that, that server would be that big and it'd be on the floor, wouldn't it? Now, what happens when, when we go into these big IT suites, uh, <clears throat> there's five, there's 300 rooms in this place, and what they've got, they've got these big computer systems that actually run, they're mainframe computers, they run countries. So they run this country, this one runs that country. And what we did, the information on here was enough to run one country. So they're $125,000. But we just un- un- done them all and we took them. So, we, you know, I think we took about five million pounds worth. And then we walked out of there and uh, I got I got arrested about a year later. Um, one of my friends got um, uh, got arrested on a, on a, on a different, a different thing, uh, but he had a police uniform. 
he then was, uh, I was in a no associate of his. Police put two and two together and showed my face. And then the next thing I knew, they were queuing up to say, that's him. That's the guy that knocked on the door. That's the guy that done all the talking. And that's the guy that orchestrated it. Because they said I orchestrated everything. So, you know, all my codees got uh, tens and 11 years. And they all went guilt. They all went not guilty, got found guilty. I got uh, nicked a year later because I was on the run. And, and I went guilty thinking I'd get nine or 10. And they gave me 17 years for being a ringleader. So... I was quite shocked because we never used any firearms. But you know what? I'm so thankful for that prison sentence. And you know, I'm probably the only person in the history of prison that would say prison saved my life. Prison was the best thing that happened to me. And prison made me the person I am today. It didn't rehabilitate me because rehabilitation inside prison, unfortunately, doesn't work. It's a tick box scenario thing. And, you know, people will say it works simply because they have to do that to get out, you know, and they have to say that in front of the probation officers. But the thing that does work is, is therapy. You know, the two and a half years I spent in therapy changed my mindset, my thinking, everything else. So you know what? I, I can only say one of the best experiences of my life, one of the most life-changing experiences. You know, I dealt with the past to create a better future. And, and you know, it does work, mm. you know? And that's, and, that's, and, and that's why I wrote the book because I wrote the book because of all the epiphanies. You know, I hate being there. I hate the deviant mafia. I hated the uh, democratic community because it wasn't a democratic community because I could be voted out there by them. And I explained all that all the way through, but also all the way through the book, I also explained the epiphanies I had, the life-changing epiphanies of epiphanies. There's quite a lot of epiphanies, you know, and I'll tell you about boredom, conflict resolution, anger management, you know, um, you know, embarrassment, ego, hedonistic lifestyle, and all the things I knew about my criminal, uh, my criminal belief system and how I eventually conquered all of them. And, I, and, I, and now I'm, instead of me being susceptible to them, I now I'm in control. And, you know, I always put it down to there was a voice in my head that always, always really powerful. And, and there was another voice here that was really weak. And that was God. That was God because the kingdom of God is inside us. And the devil was on my fucking shoulder all the time. And he was really powerful. Go on, just go and do it. Whack him. Do this. Do this robbery. And then when he spoke, he was so mild and meek. But as I got in more control and, and I found out who I was and everything, his voice went straight up, his voice went down. So now when he speaks and he says, on, cheat on the girlfriend, tell, take some drugs, have a drink, I say, I've acknowledged you, now fuck off. And uh, this one comes and says, Terry, don't swear. It's not good for you. You know, you, know, you, you could have handled that a little bit better. I say, I'm sorry. What are we doing today? It's going to do something good. So you know what? The, the voices have changed. The power dynamics have changed and so have I. I hope, <laughs> you know, because the perception of change throughout the prison system is right. You know. Gosh. <laughs> I hate the word redemption, it, it, but, you know, that is, is quite appropriate word yeah. in, 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 what, in one respect. The, the motherboards, Terry, were they easy to get rid of? Um, they've never found them. Um, um, and and um, there's a five million pound confiscation order hat on me at the moment. Um, no. <laughs> if you want to email me a treasure map, my boy would love that. <laughs> Do you know what? You know we. Um, which, you know the, the good thing is that they put it down to a million, and then they put it up to two million, and then they put it up to three million and down again. And then uh, JP Morgan put, took out a private pros prosecution against me for five million. So. I can only assume it was five million. They've never recovered anything. I did have at one stage MI5 uh, come to visit me when I was in Wandsworth. Um, they um, 
they never they never told me who they was. They said, "We all we want to know is is was it a foreign firm that actually instructed you to do this, and were they Russian?" And I said, "No comment." And they asked me loads of questions and everything else. I think it's the reason why I got 17 years because I didn't I didn't uh, didn't cooperate. And and then in the death they told me to fuck off, and and then they left. And then I asked the officer, I said, "Who are they?" He said, "He said they were never here." He said, that's all you got to know, they're never here. I said, what do you mean they're never here? He said, they're government. I think they're MI5. And I thought, that's crazy. You know what I mean? And I never thought nothing of it after that. And then when I went to call, and I got 17 years, I realised that they had put the word in that they, no, matter, no matter what, this guy is not going to reap, reap the rewards. And he's not going to come out and tell his story for a very fucking long time. Mm. But you know what? He'd done me the world of good. So you know what? It is what it is. How many you know? years did you serve of that one? Eight, eight and a half. Okay. Well, sorry, eight, eight, eight years, four and a half months, every day of it, you know. Um, but as I said, you know, it was, it was a life-changing experience. Um, you know, probably one of the best experiences of a prison sentence because, you know what, I learned so much. I could, I'll just tell you a little story about one thing before, you know. My criminal value, the values were so intense. You know, you know, and I would protect my friends to the, to, the, to, the, to the ice age, you know. Um, and I remember this guy coming in once and he said, um, he said, you're Terry Ellis, isn't you? And I said, yeah. He said, I know your mate. Blah, blah, blah. He mentioned his name. And I said, yeah. He said, when I got out last time, it was only out one day, he said, and he put me on this bit of work. I think 30,000 quid. I gave him half. He said, he's such a great guy. And I, and I said, you know what? I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. When you got out of prison, he said, I've got a bit of work for you. And he went, yeah. And I bet he said he couldn't do it himself. He went, yeah. And I bet he said he couldn't do it because he knew the people and he knew the area. And he went, yeah. But I bet he said he could drive. And he went, yeah. And I said, you know what? That is not a friend, my brother. That is a parasite. If that guy was your friend, he would have given you some money. And he'll let you go and see your family after you got out of prison, your kids and everything else. But all he did was use you. If you'd have got caught and got 15 years, where would he have been? He'd have been gone. You know, and that's when I woke up. And I thought, you know what? That's me. I've done that. I've been used like that before. You know, but for, you know, on my other jobs, our people have come out and said, oh, I've got a bit of brass, I can't do it, blah, blah, blah. But because I was a fucking idiot and I, and I would do anything for money, that's who I was. I was looking at myself and I looked at this guy and I thought, you know what? I've been away from my kids for so long because of my criminal values. And I, you know, I can't let it happen again. Brilliant. Can't. Yeah, Brilliant. Can't let it happen. Terry, let's, let's call it a date a day there because I've got a feeling we, we should chat again and uh, <laughs> yeah be glad glad to Chris got loads more to talk about I'm sure now um, just stay on the line mate so we can just exchange a few ideas afterwards yeah. um, but mate thank you so much for your story uh, what you're putting out there for our young young people your honesty and your compassion uh, and for coming on the board the t-shirt podcast um thank you chris just um um i'm blown away man i'm absolutely blown away and i've thoroughly enjoyed our chat thank you thanks a lot chris i really appreciate it really appreciate the opportunity for coming on oh um, and also gonna, for all your listeners yeah we're going to put all your links for your for your books below the video and also the the charity work that you're doing so anything you you want um, ask our friends at home to know about just just ping me all the links yeah lovely and to our friends at home massive love to you all uh if you could like and subscribe that would be great i think it would be great for you because 
these are the stories that are going to get you to where you need to go in life. They're probably not necessarily the stories you're going to see on many other, uh, can we say, ego-driven podcasts. So, but I'll leave that up to you. And I'll see you all soon. Thank you. Cheers, Chris. Thank you very much. You're welcome, mate. Yeah, brother. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.